everyone. Thank you so much for joining the Behind Company Lines podcast. Today we have Max Lukachev, co-founder and CTO of Telm AI. Telm AI helps the data ops teams reduce the time spent on detecting and investigating data quality issues. Max, thank you so much for joining the show. I'm really excited to dive into your background, being you were in software engineering and research and then jumped into entrepreneurship. I'm, I'm sure that took a lot of courage and, and a lot of different experiences to lead up to this point. So, so excited to dive into that. But before we get into the good stuff, what were you doing before you started Tell Me I? Well, hi, Julian. Very excited to be here. Thanks for inviting. Before starting this company, it's actually my fifth startup. I'm not new to this. Yeah. It's the first time I'm founder, but... Yeah. You know, early in my career, you know, I started very early in the bigger companies, Hewlett Parker, Intel. But then kind of my life threw me into the startups. And my first startup was oh, more than 11 years ago. I was also a kind of founding team member, one of the first engineers. It didn't work out. But then I joined another one, which was still, you know, kind of average size startup, five years old, about 200 people. This was BY Systems and which was Basically, out of rocket ship. It started growing so fast. I went IPO the year after I joined. Uh, with a blink of an eye, there was over 1,000 people, then 2,000, 3,000. Just, it's great success story, the company itself. Yeah. And I decided after that, you know, I always like to, to build things from scratch, you know, once it's job another early stage startup. So, yeah. Rotio was also a very tiny company back then, just 2015, 50 people. Couple of years old. Also, it was amazing, amazing journey. Last year, Relto reached the unicorn status with a valuation over one B. After almost five years of Relto, I decided, okay, it's time to do something new and exciting. Another startup, which was about the same size, but 200 people, 300 people or less. Uh, it was Signal Attacks. And again, yes, yeah. got lucky. A couple of months after I joined, it got acquired by Splunk. So this is how I went back to the big company, worked a little bit in the bigger company. And at the time, I was already uh, leading engineering teams. I was engineering manager, director of engineering. So after a while, I just decided, okay, I got to build something new again. <laughs> and I had this, uh, of, you know, I always had, I, I always been passionate about data, finding problems in the data, data mining. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of very natural things to do. And luckily through this journey, through all of those companies, I met a lot of great people with whom I founded the company. Yeah. Yeah. And so fascinating going from, you know, large company, then from startup to successful startup to successful startup and, and going down the line. It sounds like one wasn't so successful, but the the other two or three were just incredibly successful. What what are some of the common factors that you think made, made those companies successful? Was it the product? Was it the team? Was it how they, how they kind of, was it their go-to-market strategy? What exactly do you think, or a few things that you think led to the success of, of the startups that, you know, went to unicorn status or were acquired? Is there any similarity that you saw being on the engineering side that you think made them successful? Well, if, if there was a simple answer, everyone would have a successful company. Yeah. <laughs> Not a simple, but one thing, maybe what resonated with me and kind of the principle I try to live by persistence will pay off you know you, you have to yeah. stay true to to what you're doing kind of keep doing there's ups and downs like one day everything good the, the other day it's terrible just keep doing it don't give up yeah 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 
How how are engineering teams different, you know, and, and I guess more of a, a granular question, you know, being an engineer at Hewlett Packard versus running an engineering team, is there some takeaways that you took from that experience that, that worked well in the startup environment? And what about the startup environment is just uniquely different? Obviously, it's a smaller scale. It's maybe a little bit more accountability, but at some point that there's an engine running. What, what's the, like, distinctly different between your experience working at a big company versus running an engineering team at a, at a smaller company? What's different or what's similar? I'd say uh, in a startup, the most critical skill is not skill, but, you know, personality is, is ownership, right? It's, mm. it's not the hard skill itself because in a startup, you do things you never done, right? You, you have no clue how to do, but you have to figure out and you have to own, right? Because there's no one to to keep, you know, pushing you. It's like, well, do that and do this, right? It's, it's all about each individual in the startup owning the park yeah. they're building and trying to do best every day. Just, you know, just do a little more every day in that sense. And okay. it accumulates over time. So that's what makes startup be much more dynamic, be much more agile, right? It's when you build, you don't know what you're building. You're still figuring out. You don't know what's the product market yeah. fit. You don't know <laughs> your persona yet. You don't know so many things. You're trying to figure out. And the quicker you can do it, the more questions you ask, the more you will try to figure out yourself, okay, you know, what if, right? What else we can try? The more successful, the more likely we'll be successful. Yeah. Well, this is something what is that the best way being that you... you Okay. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I was going to ask, you know, being that you've been on both sides of as a founder and as a engineering lead and team lead, what is the best way that founders can communicate what they want their team to build and do so in a way that, you know, is productive and successful? Because I think a lot of, a lot of times it's, you know, road mapping and we give this grand idea about, you know, what we want it to look like, what features we want it to have. But the organization of completing those tasks is, is like the tricky part. Being that you're on both sides, what, what are like the best practices for a founder, you know, managing and, and inspiring and motivating their engineering team to build something that they're passionate about, but also that that can be done in, in you know, in the time that it needs to be done. Do you, do you have any advice for founders? Yeah. Well, from this perspective, it might be the kind of one-sided advice because I'm coming from the technical background. So for me, it's very easy to speak to engineers. I was an engineer myself. Yeah. And advice here is just be involved. In the startup, it's very critical. But mm -hmm. yeah, you have ideas, but you have to be involved. You cannot just describe your idea quickly to someone and, and be sure that it will be implemented in the right way, the way you intended it to be, and so on. So you just have to be out there with people building it together even though you may not be writing code yourself, but just participate in these conversations, give as much input, as much context as possible, because, you know, we all work with, you know, yeah. all the engineers are smart people. It's that context, which makes that idea to actually materialize in something, you know, working, right? You know, what's how the users are going to yeah. use it. Why do you need to, it needs to be done this way. And the more... 
of this background to build, the more ownership you will end at the end because people will understand what they are building. And the less of mm. the never do micromanagement, just instead build that ownership into, into people. So you don't have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the piece about being involved. I, I, that's so simple, but I think in practice it, it's difficult because it's on the edge of, of, you know, being involved in micromanagement and uh, being completely, you know, away from the product. But I love the involvement of it in building together and giving somebody the, the, the background and reasons behind, because a lot of that, you know, I think breeds to creative solutions that you allow your employees and, and your engineering team to make by understanding the overall, you know, goal or mission. Thinking about you know, your experience moving from, you know, Yeah, just want to add one more thing. And it's very important to build that culture that anyone can tell you your idea sucks. My idea sucks because, you know, it, it may be, you know, if I want people to be not afraid to call it out, you know, there may be a better option. But again, my goal is to give that context so the best idea can be. Yeah, 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 that, that's fantastic. When you think about your transition from engineer to founder, what are some of the things that you needed to learn or some, some, the learning curve, anything on there that in particular you weren't aware of going into being a founder that, that now in hindsight, you would, you would tell, you know, your past self, maybe focus on these key few things, because if you learn them more quickly, it'll be a smoother transition. Is there any lessons or anything as a founder that you had to learn that you wish you knew going into it? Yeah, probably the toughest lesson is especially if you you spend a lot of time in bigger companies more well-funded companies building stuff you kind of set your 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 brain to work how to do it best how to do it right right you know you know all of those best practices that you will try to do the the best engineering possible and stuff in the startup you have to remind yourself about the right balance you know how to do it right but you have this amount of money and you have to do it period Right. So you have to be creative into where to cut, where to do it faster, maybe not as ideal and yet be just the right level of, you know, well, perfect, but at the same time, not perfect. Right. Just finding that balance and keeping reminding yourself, like you don't have time, you have to move fast. You don't have money You have to, you know, use whatever resources you have, whatever is available to you. So don't try to over-engineer. Do what's necessary, but don't overdo it. Because likely in up a year, you will, your system will look very different from now. You will have an opportunity to do it right yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about your experience going through the acquisition from Signal FX, at your time from Signal FX, just yeah, as a curiosity, what was that transition like? Like reestablishing yourself on a new team where you brought over together in like a pod or were you having to integrate into that, that larger organization? And, you know, what, what were some things you could bring over and what were some things that you had to adjust to with the new organization? So I think signal effects was a little bit of an outlier here because Blanc gave us a lot of freedom initially and a lot of time to adjust because it was such a, you know, big team integrating into Splunk's world. So we had tremendous amount of support and time given to us to adjust to the way Splunk is doing things. So I really cannot call out any 
You know, there were challenges, but it was, it went much smoother than I expected, to be honest. So, yeah, and probably the, the, the right, you know, if you're looking for advice or from my perspective as who I was, my role as it was back then, just try to figure out as quick as possible as the new organization works and try to adjust to that. And just be transparent with, mm -hmm. be supportive to, to your team because everyone is going through that uncertainty and stress. A lot of things are changing, you know, starting from little things, the way, you know, expenses were done to the bigger things, like how, what's the career path and stuff for, for people, how the roles will be adjusted and stuff like that, you know, how the teams will be split and then move between different or all you can do is try to figure out and, and help others at this point. Yeah. And I can say that, you know, we did it just right. I was really impressed with the team that everyone just pulled together and was very supportive like that. Yeah. Now, mo moving towards, you know, what you're doing at Telm, you said, you know, you've always been interested in big data and, and kind of reading into, you know, kind of what the qualities it has or maybe some insights that it shares. What about, you know, if you could, if you can expand on that, what about data kind of gets you excited and then what are some insights that companies gain from understanding their data just better or at a higher level or, or at a more granular detail? Well, data is an exciting topic by itself because there are so many things to talk about. And when we are talking about quality of the data, just imagine that on average companies would have dozens of different data sources. Sometimes it's hundreds. They're buying this data, they are producing this data internally. For example, every interaction of your customers are creating records in your databases and you have a marketing system, you have your customer support systems, you're buying data from data providers, whatever. Never I have seen a case when this data is clean. There's so much garbage in the data. It's just unbelievable. And the thing, the, the, the most unbelievable thing that people... It, it, I think it's just nature of people. We all think that we don't have that problem until we actually see <laughs> so much of that. Right? And yeah, the, the exciting part is tremendous potential of having the right data at the right, what impact it can have on the business, you know, making the right decisions, you know, where to, where, where the problem can be with your business, where to put more focus or on the other hand, you know, we, we can be talking about telemetry data versus sales data versus marketing data, you know, great potential of fighting, building analytics on top of that. But all analytics is based on the assumption that data is of high quality. And if you cannot yeah. ensure what data is high quality, like this is a waste of effort. Yeah. What, what's, what's an example of garbage data? Okay. You can have systems which are for example, collecting information about your customers and things can go wrong at any point. Let's say information about portion of the customers wasn't updated on time, outdated data. That's a good example of, of bad data. It looks right, but it's just a year old. It's no longer valid. Data where you have just plain wrong information, you have wrong phone numbers associated with people wrong addresses, wrong states, all of this makes a significant impact for marketing. Yeah. 
data about your customers, important properties of your customers, wrong employee count, wrong size of the company. Like it's how you are targeting yeah. your campaigns. It directly goes back to the ROI of these campaigns. Back in Viva, we, we used to work with the pharmaceutics. We were building software for pharma companies. There it's even worse, you know, problem in your data yeah. uh, during the clinical trial may cause huge penalties and huge delays in the rollout of a new drug, which counts like millions of dollars, right? Simple mistakes, you know, the wrong dates, the wrong references to your patients, you know, wrong attributions on this data. Anything can impact the audit process and trigger the very expensive losses. Yeah. Yeah. What, how does Telm, I guess, think about the quality of data? And, and it, it sounds like it starts all at the collection point, but then obviously once it's, you know, goes through the analytic process, it, it kind of, it, it kind of relies on the data already previously, but how does Telm guarantee or, or, you know, identify ways that you can have quality data? Is it helping on the intake process? Is it cleaning it up once it's been recorded? What, what does tell, where's tell involved in the process of collecting quality data and having quality data to do analytics? Yeah. Tell in this case is helping on as, as left as possible to the intake, right? The close to the injection of the data as possible. So, and it helps by monitoring the data, by monitoring what I, what I mean is if, if, if you look at the data observability as an area itself, it's a very broad area. There are a lot of software, like new software companies and sometimes established software companies doing something in the data observability. And a lot of times it's about monitoring, you know, the pipelines, how your yeah. transformation of the data, you know, if there's any errors, if all the data is delivered to your data warehouse for your analytics, you know, some additional checks on the data, was it delivered time and stuff like that. We are looking at a slightly different side. We're actually looking deeper into the data and looking into the quality of the actual data being delivered, not only the pipeline yeah. health, but also health of the data itself. And what we are doing is also employing ML AI to establish how the data should look like, basically historical appearance of the data, formats, the shape of the data, the distributions in the data. If they start shifting to something abnormal, we can alert the team responsible for that so they can, in a timely way, very quickly see exactly what are the problems, investigate them, and really shrink down this term around from the alert to a resolution you know, dramatically, avoiding the yeah. problem when it's the business owner who finds the problem of the data and calls back saying, hey, like this chart doesn't look right. Why? Right? In the form of yeah. escalation. So we are trying to remove that escalation from this path and be more proactive in finding those issues. Yeah. What, what, to describe the, the current traction of the company, you know, you went through YC, which is, you know, an amazing startup school to kind of help, you know, I, I think it's touched so many different startups and successful startups and has a really methodical way of doing so. But what has, from that experience, have you kind of gained and, and now in terms of traction that you're seeing, who are you partnering with and, and you know, what is Telm kind of the, the next step of Telm and the next milestone that you're currently working on and, and the work and who are the companies you're currently working with? So, yeah, it's a great question. First of all, yes, indeed, YC is a very, it's a great opportunity for startups to, I won't say exactly learn all of those things, 
but give a perspective of what's important. And our partners from, no. we have both YC and the institutional investors and all of our partners are just a great support. I think this is the best thing that happens to the company, finding the, the right partners who provide you advice, who can help you with marketing or even sometimes even closing the deals by you know, coaching you. For me, coming as a, from the engineering side, it was very unnatural and I didn't really know how to do sales, right? Never done this. Having someone who can coach you, how to close the deal, what things to do right, the sequence, how to even project those things to happen. It's, it's great. And uh, YC and our other investors are a great support. Of that. Yeah. Yeah. And who are you currently working with that you're excited about? Customer-wise? Yeah. Yeah. We just recently closed DataStacks, which is a great company. And it's my, one of my favorite databases, Cassandra. They're yeah. very interesting use case. We are working with a few more companies. It's all enterprise, right? So we, and I would say yeah. right now we are working with kind of bigger scale into more established companies. Mm -hmm. Again, just because of the stage of the startup, like every startup goes through the stages. Initially, you do things which are not scalable. So you top down sales, you do, you know, a lot of stuff from your network and do more complex use cases that maybe you like to do just because you're doing well, design partnership with companies and so on. So it's only certain companies have an Apple for that, right? It's, it's kind of the stage you're going through to, mm -hmm. to get to the broader market, basically, to find your product market fit. Yeah. Yeah. We are working mostly with enterprise companies across different verticals. So we are not limited to only to, let's say, technology or to pharma. We actually work with technology, pharma, product companies, e-marketing. So yeah, it's a, it's a good variety. There's no, yeah, it's on one, lot of not. Yeah. What's the process with working, you know, obviously data you need for, for, I'm assuming for your product to work very well, just a, a large pool of it to, you know, run this process. So you just kind of iterate on different pieces of the technology and the code that you're running. And, and you know, it, it seems like it's, it's very, uh, it needs a lot of volume to, to work how it's supposed to. But what's the process that people don't know about in, in regards to working with enterprise companies? How long is that process? Do you integrate within their team? Is there a proof of concept that you do with them before you... You know, go through a contract. Is it a white glove service? What What is it like? What's the experience of, of working with enterprise clients that is just ultimately different than, than working with, you know, small and medium businesses, mid-market or, or even, you know, startups? Yeah, this is a great question. So and probably the short answer is whatever your worst expectation working with enterprise in terms of like how complex it is multiplied by three. <laughs> because yeah, it's a process and a challenge on every step. First, you have to find the right people who have the budget, who have the use case. So it's doing the discovery and validating the, the POC, if the POC is even worth starting. So after you do that, yeah. the POC itself, there's a lot of upfront work we have to perform, such as to security review do all the sign-offs on the POC itself, even though it's unpaid POC, right? You have to make sure that we are engaging it, yeah. knowing that there is all the things done right. We've got, you know, five different approvals from different teams to, to even start the POC. But once the POC done and POC, usually with enterprise companies, they're also much more complex than or bigger enterprise, more sophisticated enterprise than the smaller size businesses is they are much more custom. 
like a lot of times there is a unique requirement, a new integration, let's say database you haven't had in your portfolio before, or, you know, a new type of analytics that wasn't there in the product before. You have to do it very quickly during the POC, develop something and roll it out to demonstrate the power of the platform with the architecture that you have. And after that, it comes to the negotiation and that makes it even much more fun because the enterprises, they work on their own financial model. No. The financial year is different. There's a lot of times, depending on when you entered in this financial year, was the initiative planned or not? So you have to do a lot of financial engineering, how to make sure that, okay, even if you are good, if you want the technic, you have the technical win through the POC, how to close it for, you know, to make sense for yourself and for the company, which is buying it. Because again, there are so many restrictions on, you know, the budgeting, planning, when this happens throughout the year cycle and so on. Yeah. 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 It, it, and it also, seems like there's so much involved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not to say that security is a must. Like you, you have to have SOC two, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's it's. I love the honesty behind you know whatever your worst expectation is, multiply by three because I think you know a lot of companies strive to work with enterprise clients because you know I think in their mind the, the deal size goes up, but it, it gets so much more involved of a process that a lot of companies either need to to mature to or. Be, or, or their product like yours needs to be inherently useful for those companies. And, and it kind of justifies the, the level of involvement. What are some of the biggest risks that Telm AI faces today? I would say the, the biggest thing I worry about is just general market. Because for a startup, a startup being a startup, it's always a big world vulnerable, right? And a lot of things are out of your control. If the market goes down, everyone starts shifting, kind of cutting the spend everywhere, right? So it kind of creates this, you know, cycle like, okay, you, you have to have some cadence of, of the new customers, the revenue grows, you have a lot of bigger companies, especially the enterprises, they are trying to do their financial planning and trying to cut their costs to prepare for the longer pull down in the market and so on, right? So yeah, depending on like in what shape you were, entering this phase of the market, it may be yeah. good for you or bad for you. It, it, it all depends, like, what's your monthly span? You know, what's your projections in, in the pipeline and growth? How big is your team, right? Luckily for Telmai, we were, we didn't have a lot of kind of this ballast. So, and, and, and a lot of kind of, and a lot of spend. So we are a little bit, feeling a little bit more comfortable in this sense. But you know, if you enter this stage or where we all are now, and you have, you know, 200 engineers and not that much of revenue, that's a big problem. You, you have to be super worried yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If everything goes well, what's the long-term vision for town? Long-term is really growing it into a complex solution for for all things related data quality, right? Monitoring data quality. I don't think we will go into the infrastructure, like data engineering infrastructure is not exactly where we see our, ourselves, but things about mm -hmm. data quality, what's inside the data, that's uh, definitely our interest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always like to ask founders this question just to gain some selfish research purpose for some selfish research purposes, but also for my audience to gain some knowledge and insights. But what are some books or people who have influenced you the most throughout either your career or currently? as you're building a startup? I think, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough 
to work with some great leaders from my career. And I even picked up some of the, you know, mottos, which kind of helped me moving yeah. day to day. And one of that was Peter Gassner from Viva, CEO of Viva, that, you know, persistence will pay off is one thing which kept me going in a, in a very hard moment, a lot of times. That's his phrase, which was in the water cooler when I was a yeah. engineer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. It's so simple and, and, it, and, but it, it just is empowering for the amount of work that you have to do. And, you know, running a startup now myself, it's, it's really, you know, the achievements come, but you, the, you can't rely on that as the measure of success. It's, it's the work that you put in. That's your measurements, the activity that, that you should, you should help validate the work that you're doing, because at some point you should see a lot of success and things trickle in, but it's all the work that you're doing. And, and prior to that. That really leads to those moments. I know we're at time and, and I'm so thankful that you jumped on the show. But before we leave, where can we find, where can we support Tell Me I'm? Give us your LinkedIn's, your Twitter's, your every handle. If you have a Discord channel, where can we be a supporter and, and, and you know, kind of dive into technology that you're building? I, well, first of all, thanks so much for inviting. It was a great chat. I really enjoyed the conversation. You can learn about Tell Me on our website, Tell.ai. And also on the, our LinkedIn page, just by looking for Telmai, T-E-L-M-A-I, just a single word. A little history behind that. Telmai actually just means tell me AI. So that's what we are doing. Tell me where the high problem AI, please. <laughs> that, well, thank you so much, Max, for being on the show. I really hope you enjoyed yourself. And I'm, I'm really excited to share this with our audience. And maybe in the future, I hope to have you back. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Yeah.